Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 80, September 26th to October 2nd, 1862. Last week, we brought the Antietam campaign to a close with the Battle of Shepherdstown. We also fought the Battle of Iuka, which is going to lead to a conclusion of that campaign next week with the Second Battle of Corinth. We also had the Confederate capture of Munfordville, which is part of the campaign that results in the Battle of Perryville. This week we have a few smaller engagements, but first I do want to mention that although it is September, we are coming up here at the end of the week all the way to October, Hard to believe that's already upon us here. We've had some big episodes recently, obviously, Second Manassas and Antietam. So we are coming into a new month, so that means new Patreon content. And I think we're going back to picture slideshow. And I know when I started doing that, I mentioned how I wasn't going to do any of the, the larger battlefields, but... Uh, I think I'm going to do one for Antietam. Um, As you can imagine, I have a lot of pictures from that battlefield. It's one of my favorites. And I think it would be good just to roll that out there, obviously, with maybe an emphasis on parts of the battlefield that we talked about in our narrative. So we will... Go ahead and post that fairly soon here into October. If that sounds like something that would interest you, please make sure to check out the Patreon. And obviously the support for the show is greatly appreciated. Now, as I mentioned, we do have a few events this week. But first, I would like to kind of backtrack and backtrack a great deal here. We need to check in to what is going on with Kirby Smith in Kentucky. If you ask many historians what Jefferson Davis's major flaw was, there are going to be many answers. I think one of the top answers, though, would be that he neglects the Western theater in favor of the East. It's pretty understandable to see why, because a lot of these battles are happening literally right outside Richmond, but There are many cases that we can point to in Tennessee and even here in 1863 in Vicksburg where this lack of attention to these areas is going to be extremely negative toward the Confederate cause. And even in some cases where there is a shifting of emphasis, it's too late. Unfortunately, I have pulled the same error here in the podcast We had such a busy couple of episodes, I honestly did not kick off Kirby Smith's movement into Kentucky in time. I also have neglected his first battle in Kentucky in the Battle of Richmond, which was fought on August 30th, 1862. Now, you will forgive me, hopefully, we were kind of in the middle of a three-day-long slog at Second Manassas. So, we will go back and cover Richmond before talking about the skirmish at Snow's Pond, also part 
of Smith's portion of the Kentucky campaign. I think it may work out a little better, though, in terms of the timeline, if we can really focus on this campaign without taking a huge gap uh, into Maryland. And hopefully you agree. Now, Kirby Smith has been mentioned a time or two during our narrative, but we have not really introduced him. A Florida native, he had served in the war with Mexico. If you remember, he plays a huge part in First Manassas, his troops arriving just in time to smash into the Federals at Chen Ridge. In the modern day, you hear more about Stonewall than Smith, but in 1861, he was given more praise than the Virginian. Smith would command at Chattanooga, but feel the strain of having to defend a large department. He would hatch a plan to enter Kentucky, which originally was rejected by Bragg. Smith would convince Bragg to change his base to his department, but would kick off the invasion before Bragg had arrived. So, when Bragg goes into Kentucky, like we talked about last week at Munfordville, he is doing so in order to support Smith and in a certain way, maybe clean up his mess. You see, Bragg would be the superior, but before the armies united, they would be two independent forces relying on cooperation, which should not have happened, instead leaving one overall commander. Kirby Smith obviously does not want Braxton Bragg to be his superior, so he is going to relish the opportunity to remain independent as long as possible. This lack of coordination, communication, and lack of clear objectives was going to be an issue for the Heartland Campaign of 1862. Don Carlos Buell had slowly made his way to Chattanooga, getting bogged down in northern Alabama. Things were not going well in Alabama, there being considerable guerrilla activity. General Robert L. McCook, one of the fighting McCook's family from Ohio, was killed by possibly Confederate cavalry, possibly guerrillas, which sparked some reprisals and executions by some of the Federals. This threat of guerrilla activity upon the supply lines would slow the already cautious Buell even further. When it was learned Bragg would join Smith in Kentucky, he jumped at the chance to fall back to Nashville, his heart not being in the Chattanooga campaign. Buell was actually supported by none other than the federal governor of Tennessee, who was Andrew Johnson. And obviously put a tab on Johnson. Maybe some of you are already aware Johnson is going to be the next vice president under Lincoln. So he is more than happy to have the federal gains in Tennessee protected by a large army with Don Carlos Buell. Now in August of 1862... Smith will bypass Union troops at the Cumberland Gap and enter Kentucky, bent on taking Lexington. Smith has four divisions, one commanded by Patrick Claiborne and another by Henry Heath. 
Heath, if you recall, was a friend of Jefferson Davis. Smith would run into Union forces under Bull Nelson at Richmond, Kentucky in late August. Nelson has with him mostly new recruits from Indiana and Kentucky. August the 29th would see some cavalry skirmishing. August 30th would see Nelson's line stand against Smith's army. Claiborne would probe the left flank of the division under command of Malin Manson. Manson was a veteran of Western Virginia and Mill Springs. He's going to be wounded in Georgia severely, which probably led to his eventual resignation from the war. Now, despite this being considered a smaller-scale engagement, there was some fierce action going on. Case in point example is that a bullet actually knocks out some of General Claiborne's teeth during the engagement. Another Confederate division under Thomas Churchill would move while Manson was occupied. Churchill had been present at Wilson's Creek, commanding a unit of mounted rifles from Arkansas. He will continue to command in the Trans-Mississippi. Churchill is going to use the terrain to his advantage. There was a draw that would cover the approach of his troops. Advancing undetected, he would take the Federals completely by surprise. Unfortunately for Manson, it was exactly the wrong time for an attack to spring on his right flank. Troops had been moved from this part of the line to the left because there was a perceived threat in that direction. Unfortunately for the new recruits, the line would completely collapse, attempts to stall the Confederates failing. As the fugitives streamed back into the town of Richmond itself, there were some attempts to make a stand. Charles Cruft and his men actually torn up in the process. Nelson is even going to try to rally the retreating men in the streets of Richmond itself, but Kirby Smith would use fresh troops to renew the assault and break the Federals. Nelson is wounded during the fighting, and it is this wound he will be recovering from when he will have his fateful encounter with Jefferson C. Davis. Actually, the Battle of Richmond is where Nelson gets his very poor opinion of Indiana troops. A lot of them were new recruits, of course, but because of this complete rout at the hands of Kirby Smith, he's going to say some not-so-nice things about Indiana and the quality of the men and the volunteers coming from there, which Jefferson C. Davis is obviously from Indiana, and he is going to take exception to those comments, which leads to the altercation and then, eventually, the assassination Confederate cavalry is going to swing around Richmond and cut off the retreat, in the process capturing some 4,000 men. There would be 750 Confederate casualties as opposed to 900 battlefield losses for the Federals. Richmond is often overlooked in the annals of the war, obviously. I did so myself, unfortunately, but it's also considered to be the most complete victory of the war. For the amount of Federals engaged versus the amount of casualties with 
killed, wounded, and captured, it has that distinction of being fairly lopsided. The objective of Lexington is going to fall, as well as Frankfurt soon thereafter. Frankfurt is going to be the only Union capital to fall during the war. On September 25th, 1862, we have a skirmish at Snow's Pond. This skirmish would be connected with the Northern Movement by Kirby Smith. Cavalry under John Hunt Morgan would surround and capture some Federals at Snow's Pond. It is worth mentioning, as we talked about in a previous episode, that Morgan, a Kentucky native, played a big part in the Heartland Campaign. It was his raid, and then his subsequent reports, which he's going to give to Kirby Smith, that prompt this movement into this battleground state. To be fair, though, it does not take too much convincing of Smith, who thought himself to be a biblical warrior and Napoleon all rolled up into one. So needless to say, he is fairly difficult to work with. Cavalry under Morgan and Forrest will support the campaign. It's going to be some time coming, but this is going to be the start of Forrest and his dissatisfaction with Bragg, which is going to lead to him to vow never to be under the command of Bragg again. Bragg, of course, does not like those who are not from West Point, and does not like those from the state of Tennessee, which is weird, but... His wife does not like folks from that state, so likewise Bragg is going to follow suit. But let's head back to Snow's Pond. It's going to be assaulted by some of Morgan's men, commanded by Basil Duke. Duke was also a Kentucky native who serves in a lot of Morgan's raids before being captured. Upon being released, he will be promoted to general, and serve out the rest of the war, being the escort for Jefferson Davis in the waning hours of the conflict. Eventually, he will serve as a commissioner for Shiloh Military Park. In September of 1862, Duke will skirmish with the Federal Cavalry, but force a surrender before any casualties were sustained. Part of this most likely was that Snow's Pond was an untenable position, the pond having been contaminated by a dead mule. This was Confederate handiwork, having camped there a short while before. Reportedly, there was a soldier who died after drinking the water, which forced the Federals to boil for future use. I wanted to highlight this because there was a definite issue with drinking water during the campaign. It's not something that we usually think about, Kentucky being a particularly dry area, but both sides are going to suffer from lack of available drinking water. And many of the sources that are available, much like Snow's Pond, are going to be contaminated. This gives us an idea of what the soldiers were dealing with, combined with some kind of guerrilla activity on both sides. As a result of the operation by Duke, 60-some prisoners were taken at Snow's Pond. 
Shifting gears just a little bit, on September 20th, we have the First Battle of Newtonia in Missouri. Newtonia is a town in southwest Missouri. It was important to the Civil War because there was a lead mine there. In September of 1862, there would be a Confederate move led by Joe Shelby to occupy the town. This is actually going to be the first Confederate offensive in the Trans-Mississippi since Pea Ridge. Shelby was supported by Colonel Douglas Cooper and his combined brigade of Texans, Cherokees, Chickasaws, and Choctaws. Overall, their ragtag forces would number some 5,000 men. The First Battle of Newtonia is unique in that it actually sees regiment-sized units of Native Americans engaging one another on both sides, in what we would consider more conventional warfare, more reminiscent of the Eastern Theater. Shelby is going to occupy Newtonia with Cooper's blessing. This is going to prompt a Union response from Fort Scott. Union troops would be led overall by Frederick Salmon, but commanded more directly by General James Blunt. Salmon had immigrated to Wisconsin from Prussia. He has actually already served in the Battle of Wilson's Creek and will continue to serve in the Trans-Mississippi. After the war, he will serve in various political appointments. James Blunt was born in Maine, but had moved to Kansas in the 1850s. He would be part of the Kansas Brigade and will be operating in this theater of the war as well. In fact, it's going to be all over the place pretty soon in some of these campaigns and campaigns against guerrilla activity in Missouri. Blunt had cobbled together another hodgepodge of forces to face the Confederates. This included the already mentioned Union-aligned Native Americans, called the Indian Home Guard, Kansas Cavalry, and a unit of Wisconsin Infantry. Their response would be necessary because the Confederates may have moved deeper into Missouri, or even made an attempt on Fort Scott itself. Remember that Fort Scott had been the proposed target of Ben McCullough a short time before Pea Ridge and his demise. Skirmishing would begin several days before the battle proper with the death of one of Shelby's officers, Colonel Upton Hayes. From the southern perspective, mostly cavalry occupied Newtonia, which included a small battery of two guns from Shelby's command. Colonel Edward Lind would move toward the town in a probing action, which would bring on a general engagement. Both sides would be throwing reinforcements in during the battle, adding to the overall troop strength. Lind would advance with several companies of the 9th Wisconsin, supported by artillery. They would begin engaging the Confederate Texas Cavalry, having some success in pushing the rebels back, although they were unable to silence or capture the enemy guns. Confederate cavalry would arrive in the form of the Chickasaw and Choctaw regiments to stop the Union advance. Reportedly, these units would be singing their war songs and giving war whoops during the battle, which probably did not go over well for the morale of the Federals. 
what would begin as an orderly withdrawal by the northern troops would turn into a rout, possibly helped by the terrain in which the Wisconsin regiment had to be funneled. I have seen it reported that most of the Union casualties would occur during this part of the battle. Kansas Cavalry and the 3rd Indian Home Guard would counterattack, which stopped the Confederate advance for a time, causing a lull in the battle while both sides redeployed and sent for additional reinforcements. The battle would recommence with an artillery duel, Texas Cavalry being parried away by the Indian Home Guard, who would pursue the retreating rebels. Strikes to the flank of the Home Guard would turn the tide and force the Federal line to retreat. Militia units would stop a more vigorous pursuit by the Confederates, as would the oncoming darkness. Thus, the First Battle of Newtonia would come to a conclusion. Casualty numbers are going to vary from the 40s to the 100s for both sides. I think probably the more accurate account was 200 or so for the Federals and around 50 for the Confederates which would prove a one-sided victory for the South. Most of the casualties were suffered by the 9th Wisconsin, the four companies engaged with Colonel Lynn being reported to have been badly cut up in the action. Union troops would withdraw, but the Confederates would not press their advantage before being forced to run back to Arkansas or Indian Territory. We will keep tabs on what is going on in this neck of the woods here for the next couple of weeks. Also this week, we had some action in Texas. Specifically, we have the first battle of Sabine Pass, which is a waterway north of Galveston and Houston. Sabine Pass actually is right on the border between Texas and Louisiana. In 1862, it was an important waterway close to a railroad, so for supply and blockading running purposes, this would be an important target for the U.S. Navy. David Farragut would assign three ships to take Sabine City and the pass. They were the USS Kensington, the USS Rachel Seaman, and the USS Henry Jane, a mortar schooner. Unfortunately for the attacking party, the USS Kensington was drafted too low to get into the range of a fort stationed at the pass, so the two smaller vessels would be tasked with the job. They would have to get over a sandbar as part of their planned assault. Despite being smaller, they would have difficulty making it over the bar and actually get stuck. Even with these vessels as a sitting duck, the guns at the nearby fort were not modern. In addition, they were manned by only 28 artillerymen. Once in open water, the vessels were able to exchange better fire on the fort, showing the Texans this was a battle they would not be able to win. Guns were spiked, and the fort was abandoned. On September 25th, the Navy would approach Sabine City, which was surrendered by the citizens. This is significant because it was the first city in Texas to fall to federal forces. Now the next action technically occurs next week, but since we are in this neck of the woods, 
I figured it would be a good idea to just go ahead and jump into it. Once Sabine fell, it would be on to the next target in Galveston. In early October 1862, David Farragut would send William Henshaw on a mission to capture Galveston. Galveston, of course, is on the Gulf Coast near Houston. Confederate forces in Texas, mind you, were commanded by our friend John Bankhead Magruder. These were the first actions he was seeing in his new department, having fallen from grace in the east. Unfortunately, Galveston, which was protected by Fort Point and connected to the mainland using a bridge, was deemed not a very good defendable position. Most of the cannon had been removed from the defenses due to this perceived weakness. When the Union Navy showed up in October, Henshaw had several ships under his command, including the USS Westfield, Owasco, Clifton, and Henry Jane. Additionally, the revenue cutter Harriet Lane accompanied the voyage. Facing these steamers would be one single cannon in Fort Point, with an additional battery of dated weapons at Galveston. In all, the troops around Houston did number some 5,000 for the Confederates, which would deter any kind of deeper land operations. Galveston's surrender had actually been demanded and then declined in May of 1862, but the Harriet Lane would approach again in October with the same demand. This time, facing a deep numerical gap, the Confederates wished to negotiate. In a comedy of errors, they could not find a boat that would reach the Federal ships. Instead, the Federals would grow impatient. Moving closer, the Confederate cannon shot off a warning to the enemy Navy, which was responded by general firing on the positions by the Yankees. They would disable the lone piece before order was finally restored. A four-day truce was called, in which time the Confederates would evacuate. Federal Navy personnel would occupy the fort and the city without incident. It would be some time before there was a presence in the form of ground troops. No casualties were reported on either side. The firing on October 4th would be known as the Battle of Galveston Harbor, not to be confused with the Battle of Galveston, which we will see here in 1863. We are going to pause there for now. This week, we have done a good job of backtracking and setting up the campaign that will result in the Battle of Perryville. We also had the First Battle of Newtonia, which showed the further battleground nature of the state of Missouri. We closed out with some naval action in Texas. Next week, we are going to head back to Mississippi to fight the Second Battle of Corinth and close the door on opportunity for the Confederates there. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Any kind of questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.